What's up, guys? Welcome back to another daily Bible reading snapshot podcast where we are studying the book of Leviticus, which is the book all about being holy people for God in the land of Israel. So this is, again, for the Israelites as they enter this new land where they're going to dispossess the Canaanites and be God's holy nation among other nations. They need to know, how do we do this? How do we do this in a holy way? How do we live for God in a culture that is not about living for God? So chapters 14 and 15 continue the work that we talked about last week of these purity laws to keep these Israelites unstained from their culture. And just to highlight one verse that comes in chapter 14, it's interesting when God speaks of these leprous diseases in chapter 14, verse 34, he says, When you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for possession— And I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession. And then he goes on and speaks about the leprous disease. But did you catch how God talks about leprosy? He says, I put a case of leprous disease in a house. I think this is a good reminder. We see it all through the Gospels. We see it all through the Epistles. We see it especially in the books of the prophets that God is sovereign and nothing happens, no disease, no affliction, no war, not even a hardening of someone's heart. None of that happens without God's knowledge and God's involvement. So you see he's sovereign even over that, and then he gives rules on how to deal with it. Then in chapter 16, we get the rules and laws about the Day of Atonement. It's called Yom Kippur, and it's this day where Aaron and his sons and his descendants after him were supposed to get ready with their priestly garments. They were supposed to sacrifice a bull to cover their sin. Then they're supposed to cast lots for these two goats that they have. They're supposed to sacrifice one of them and then let the other one go in the wilderness to bear the sins of the people. And all of this was supposed to signify how God's people, who were sinners, needed their sins to be atoned for. And this was the big symbolic way that it happened for the nation of Israel. And it wasn't just the priests who had things to do and had checklists. He also tells the people of Israel, there's a couple steps you need to take. Step one is, you're going to do no ordinary work on this special day of atonement. And two, you're supposed to afflict yourselves, which is kind of a, a weird phrase. We see it a couple times here about the Day of Atonement. Uh, but what does it mean to afflict yourself? Does it mean to hurt yourself? I don't think so. The traditional way that this has been understood is that the Jews were supposed to fast and pray and really take their sins seriously and show it in, in the way that they dressed, in the way that they didn't eat food like normal, and the way that they prayed for forgiveness. And it was just another reminder, take sin seriously. And of all days of the year to take it seriously, you better take it seriously on the Day of Atonement. So important that they did that. Uh, then in chapter 17, all the way really through the end of the book, we get all these rules about how to be a holy nation and how to interact with other people in that nation. So, you know, we're going to read these and you might say, oh man, how much does this apply to me? Well, I want to remind you all that the New Testament tells you as a Christian in the church age, how important it is for you to be a holy person. Here's just a couple of verses. Uh, one, Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I don't know if you've thought about that lately, but the author of Hebrews makes it very clear and God's spirit is telling us, if you're not a holy person, 
that means you're not going to see God. Even that, the way I just said that, has echoes of Matthew chapter 5, that blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. A third verse for you is 1 Peter 1, 15, which says, But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's Peter to a very New Testament audience. That's to us. And it says, as a Christian, you better be holy. That matters a lot. Think about what Paul wrote to the Colossians. In Colossians 3, 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Those are big sins, and those are big problems that have carried on throughout all generations. And Paul in that text says, put them to death. You need to be a sanctified people. 1 Thessalonians, Paul says a lot, three verses for you from that book. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, Paul says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That means there's a possibility that there are people who are not walking according to the manner of God. There are people who are not walking worthy, where if their lives were in the balance with what the gospel says and what God calls us to, their lives would be lacking, that there'd be no holiness to prove that they're God's people. Then later in the book, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So what does God want from you? He wants you, Christian, to be sanctified. He goes on in that passage, he says, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Later in that passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. I mean, this is so clear for you and I as Christians that holiness matters. And just because some of the details are different, you're going to notice really when you read Leviticus 18, 19, 20, especially that so much of this carries over and applies to us in the church age. In particular, chapter 18 is about the kind of sexual morality that the Israelites are supposed to have, which God makes very clear it's in opposition to the Canaanites. He says the Canaanites were vomited out of the land, and they're about to in history through Joshua and the conquest. He says they're vomited out of the land because they are doing horrible things sexually. Starts off with being with close relatives. So you're going to read a whole section about how you shouldn't be sexually with any close relative of yours and how that's a problem in God's eyes. Then he says any kind of homosexuality is an abomination in God's sight. God hates it. That's what the word abomination means. It means something that God abhors. It's it's horrible. It's disgusting in God's eyes. And he says, remember, this is why the Canaanites got sent out of the land. And a lot of people have a lot of issues with that because they don't believe that today. And a lot of Christians even will claim that this is outdated and this has nothing to do with God's sexual morality for all time. But just notice that these words are picked up and taken into the New Testament in Romans chapter 1 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Timothy as well, that they're brought right into the New Testament to say, God still condemns the sin of homosexuality and all the things that surround that. So chapter 18 could not be more clear about that. And it's interesting how that leads right into chapter 19, where he says, you know how you should live with your neighbor? You know how you should live with the people that you're with? You shall love them as yourself. The key verse comes in verse 18, where God says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That is the quote that Jesus picks up in the New Testament when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? 
And he says, love God. That's the first one. But then the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's ironic to me that as we talk about this verse, so many people use that verse and that concept to explain the reason why God's people are supposed to encourage and affirm people in their sexual sin. But if you read the book of Leviticus, you'd see how clear that is incompatible with being one of God's people. So this is just so clear. And as you read it this week, I hope that you see that our culture is pushing the same things that the Canaanite culture was pushing. And Christians should stand firm on the authority of God's word against sin, whether it's promoted by the culture or not, just like these Israelites were supposed to do. So we see all this information on how to treat your neighbor and how to love one another in chapter 19. And we see that you're supposed to treat people with fairness. And you're supposed to not deceive and you're not supposed to use false balances and you're not supposed to take uh, a grudge against a neighbor or you're not supposed to slander people and you're supposed to treat old people well stand up before a gray head and honor the face of an old man this text says and it says you shall treat strangers just like you would treat people who you know and are your fellow countrymen don't be showing partiality and being nice to the people that look like you or sound like you or grew up like you, you're supposed to treat all people with the fairness that God's law requires. Now, there's a big misconception. People take that and say, well, that must mean you affirm all people in whatever sin they're committing. That's so clearly not what God is saying. God is saying the opposite. In fact, he has very, very strong language for people who want to continue to promote sin, which he says in chapter 20. He talks about people who offer their children as child sacrifices to the God of Moloch. He says, it's so wrong. It's so bad. Anyone who does this, they need to be cut off from their people. God is so serious about sin. And it should remind us our main theme of Leviticus, which is that God is too holy for his people. He's too holy. He's too righteous and too good. And it calls all of us as Christians who know God and now have been reconnected to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. We need to be holy as he is holy. Now, the rest of the book, He's going to give special instructions for the priests, for their festivals, for the year of Jubilee, which is an interesting thing. We see how God wanted to return the land and the property back to the tribal allotments. That's why people could, you know, they could sell their land and they could leverage it out against themselves to try to get some get some money and get some financial help for a little bit. But at the end of the day, the land was supposed to return to the tribes on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee. Uh, Then in chapter 26, very important chapter, we see blessings and curses, which we find with all covenants. There are blessings for obedience and there are curses for disregarding the covenant. And we see that right here, just like we see at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And there are many prophecies that are actually written right here in Leviticus 26 that are fulfilled in the rest of the Old Testament. Particularly, uh, there's a section about the land Sabbaths that's going to be fulfilled in 2 Chronicles 36.21 where it says the people of Israel did not let the land have their Sabbaths. So they were going to be gone from the land for 70 years, which matched the number of years of Sabbaths that they skipped over. So it's very specific prophecy and fulfillment by God. We also see at the end of the book of Jeremiah and also in the book of Lamentation, a lot of the terrible judgment that the people of Israel face was promised right here in the book of Leviticus. And, you know, when people talk about the Bible and why it's reliable, one of the things you'll often hear is that there's prophecy and fulfillment. And we tend to think, well, 
that's all about the prophecy that took place in the Old or New Testament that hasn't been fulfilled yet. Well, I want to tell you, there's a lot of certainty that you can take from the Bible that prophecy was made in the book of Leviticus, and it was fulfilled later on, hundreds of years later, in the Old Testament. So a lot of the prophecy and fulfillment is in just sandwiched between the beginning and the end of the Old Testament. And we miss that if all we think about is the amazing end times prophecies that people are looking forward to. We miss some of the other big important ones that we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So that's our Old Testament reading this week in Leviticus. Very important. We'll start numbers next week. But jumping over to the New Testament, we're reading the end of the Gospel of Matthew, which we spend a lot of time in. The last six weeks we've been in Matthew. And this is the climax of the story. This is the crucifixion and the death, and the resurrection, and the Great Commission. All of that takes place in our reading this week. I just want you to remember what Jesus' mission was all about. It was about taking on the sins of his people. That's why he's called Jesus, the Savior of his people. He's the one that's going to be living and dying as a ransom for many people. We see that earlier in the book, and now we see it all play out. So don't miss the significance, as I know this might be a familiar story to you, but really think about this is the moment. This is the afternoon where Jesus took your sins upon himself and the Father crushed the Son so that you could be justified and sanctified and glorified. So that leads us to the end of the book, the Great Commission, very important section after the resurrection where Jesus gets on a mountain again, which has happened multiple times when Jesus wants to say something important in the Gospel of Matthew. seems like he's always doing it on the top of a mountain. And he gives the Great Commission, which that is our job As Christians, it's making disciples. Uh, We call it the Great Commission just because it's a good summary of all of what Christians are supposed to do. It's make disciples. Now, how do we make disciples? Well, he says three things. You make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Now, included in those words is a, a lot of ideas by going. What we mean by that is that you've got to actually reach out and see new people become disciples. Disciple-making is not only happening within the church, within the Christians that are already there. That's a big part of disciple-making. But even more than that, we include outsiders and people who don't know Jesus yet who need to be evangelized and saved. That's going. And then baptizing includes what does it mean to really become a Christian? We want to see people really, truly converted and then baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then we teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And it's not just teaching them all that Christ has commanded. It's teaching them to observe all Christ has commanded. So the work of discipleship does not stop once someone reads the Bible all the way through. It doesn't stop once they get through some uh, one-on-one discipleship program or they get through some Bible class. That's not the end of discipleship. The end of discipleship is when a person is doing all that Christ has commanded, and that's a lifelong task. And then what they're supposed to do is invest that in other people and start making disciples on their own. So that's really what should happen as we seek to make disciples, and that's what the Gospel of Matthew ends with, and that's where we pick up in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. We see a very, very important verse that happens right at the beginning. I just want to point your attention to. It's one of the best verses in all the Bible, Mark 1.15. It's our message that we go and share with people. It's the message that Jesus shared. Mark 1.15 says this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So we are jumping right to the beginning of the story again, and we're start looking at a new book here, the Gospel of Mark, which is an important book, although it is an overlooked book in the Bible. And I think that's because its, it's bigger brother, the Gospel of Matthew, contains 
almost all of what's contained in the Gospel of Mark. So there's very few things that are unique to the Gospel of Mark that you'll find. And as you read, it might feel like you're reading a faster version of Matthew, and it's quick, and it almost feels like a summary. There's less dialogue than in the Gospel of Matthew, although there's more details in the story, in the narrative. So Mark is more about trying to explain what's happening than to recount all the teachings of Jesus, even though there's a lot of important teachings here. Uh, if you're going to look at uh, what's a good book about the teachings of Jesus, you'd look to the Gospel of Matthew, and you look to the Gospel of John in particular, and maybe in the Gospel of Luke too. There's some unique teachings of Jesus there. Not very much unique in Mark, but what's unique about Mark is how it presents Jesus. And we are supposed to see from the Gospel of Mark that everyone should ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is this person? What does he do? What does he say? Um, and there's a lot of key themes that are all wrapped up in that one question. Who is this person? So if you read looking for who is this person, who is this Jesus, you're going to read this Gospel very well. There are two important verses that answer that question of who Jesus is. The first one is in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a great example of who Jesus is. He has come to be the suffering servant for us. And then, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 15, verse 39, when Jesus is crucified, we see a centurion, a Roman, a non-Jew, who looks at what happened with Jesus, and he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. So it's super important that you get both those verses. Uh, also in the middle of the gospel, you see Peter make that confession to say, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And it's interesting, I mentioned Peter who makes that claim. The disciples, including Peter, are not really presented in a positive light in the gospel of Mark. It's People have said it's one of the most negative portrayals of the disciples in all of the gospels we see here in the gospel of Mark. And perhaps that's because of where this gospel came from. So it's important also whenever we study a book, to know who wrote it, what are the dates, are there any uh, questions about any of this, and there is a lot of questions about the Gospel of Mark, starting off with, uh, who's Mark, and how do we know Mark wrote this Gospel, right, because he doesn't say his name at the beginning, there's nowhere in this Gospel where that name is mentioned, so who is this person? Well, the Gospel of Mark is attributed to Mark uh, because there's many early church writers, one of them, uh, Eusebius, wrote about Papias, who wrote in like the 130s AD, and he said that this book was written by John Mark, who wrote on behalf of the Apostle Peter from the city of Rome, and it was John the Apostle who said this. So we're going to trust John the Apostle to know who wrote this gospel right here. Um, so Mark, who is Mark? Well, John Mark is his name. It's how he's described in the book of Acts. He is a person whose mother was named Mary. She hosted the church of Jerusalem in her house. So we think John Mark probably grew up and lived there in Jerusalem. Uh, they have a pretty big house. The church can meet there. And then we see he's also mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, and that's written by Peter. So we think that John Mark and Peter worked together in Rome to preach the gospel and lead the church there. And uh, that's probably where he writes from. So some evidence that we pick up throughout the gospel about that. We see that Mark explains some of the Jewish customs in a way that Matthew doesn't. He also translates some of the Aramaic phrases when Matthew doesn't always do that. So it's pretty clear he's writing to these Gentile Christians, particularly in Rome, but even beyond that. So we can read this gospel as Peter's 
portrayal of what happened with Jesus and what happened with the other apostles. So another question that comes up with the Gospel of Mark that's a good one is when was it written? Now there's a whole area of study when it comes to the Gospels that have to deal with who wrote what Gospel first, and this is called the synoptic problem. The synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and who wrote what one first, and was there any literary dependence on either one of these? Did Matthew copy from Mark? Did Luke copy from Mark? Did Mark copy from Matthew and Luke? Right? There's all these questions. Most scholars come up with the idea of what they call Markan priority, which is just means Mark was written first. They say that because it's the shortest book. They say that because it doesn't make much sense for Mark to repeat the same ideas that take place in Matthew. Although one of the major things that draws people to this idea is the concept that there needs to be literary dependence and that, you know, if Matthew and Mark are so similar, clearly they copied from one another. And I just don't think that's necessarily true. Although the Gospel of Luke, Luke does say that he used sources. It says he interviewed people. It says he he tried to find out what happened. So Luke clearly uses sources. He admits that at the beginning. Uh, Matthew could have. Mark could have. We don't know. Uh, we certainly don't believe that there is some alternative source that provides all the missing information. I think that that's a myth. There's no need to believe in some special document that some scholars do. That they call it Q. They say that's where all the other information about Jesus came from. Don't think you need that because you have the teachings of Jesus. You have the clear oral tradition that existed at the time about Jesus that came from Jesus's apostles. And then you've got the fact that these come from apostles and God's word's very clear that no writer of scripture just speaks on their own. They speak through the Holy Spirit and we can surmise from that and other passages that every word of God is perfect and we don't have to question the veracity or the truthfulness of statements based on where we think they came from. If they're in the scriptures and in these books that have been delivered from the apostles and they are consistent and they are part of the canon of scripture, we can trust that they come from God. So, uh, that's a lot on the Gospel of Mark, and I hope that this gets you excited to study this gospel, to glean from it all that God wants to give you, and I am just excited for you to dig in. So make sure that you're reading along every day. That's the key, that you're reading, that you have your time and your place where you go to talk to God in prayer and you go to hear from him through his word. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you back next week for the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot Podcast. 